to She Who Overcomes, the podcast where we help you transform your life, leadership, and career. I'm Mandy B. Anderson. And I'm Rachel Perman, and we are your hosts. We believe that what you've overcome makes you a leader. With a little help from two experienced coaches, that's us, you'll find the clarity and direction that you need to rise up, lead well, and live with intention. You were born to be an overcomer. So grab your coffee and let's hang out. Hey, Overcomers, before we share this week's episode with you, we wanted to invite you to our brand new coaching program. Here's the thing. Becoming a resilient woman starts with a choice. And when life gets hard, it can be really easy to get angry at yourself, get angry at God, maybe even at the universe. And you find yourself wondering, didn't I already learn this lesson? Why does this keep happening? But that's the exact moment that you have a choice to make. You can choose to stay bitter, you can choose to stay angry, or you can choose to no longer be a victim to your circumstances and rise up as that resilient overcomer that you know you were born to be. It's okay if you're taking it one day at a time right now. You might be a little sad or disappointed that you're walking through a familiar season again, or even a hard season that you never saw coming. But you are not a victim, and you can learn to rise up out of it. So, girl, it's time to grab hold of your strength and your tenacity. The hard parts of your life and your career are going to make you a leader worth following. So it is time to find your courage, dear one. In our brand new coaching experience for women called She Cultivates Resilience, we'll teach you the seven leadership principles that you need to know so you can develop, improve, and refine your ability to adjust and recover readily from adversity and those major life changes. It's time to step into the shoes of a resilient woman, and we're here to guide you along the way. Session one begins on May 12th, and we have virtual and in-person spots available, but they're very limited, so don't wait. Your registration includes a hardcover book and a hardcover journal. Find out more information and grab your spot today at www.raymateam.com. That's R-A-Y-M-A-T-E-A-M.com. Hey, Overcomers. Welcome to another episode of the She Who Overcomes podcast. Today, I have an author on the show, and I found her book, The Enlightenment of Bees, uh, back in December. I I don't even know how I found it. It it wasn't a book that I had heard about, but it was a book that was just in my line of sight, and I picked it up, and I thought, this sounds like a pretty fun book, and it has become one of my favorite ones this year. So um, the author of that book is Rachel Linden. And Rachel is a novelist and international aid worker whose adventures in over 50 countries around the globe provide excellent grist for her writing. She is the author of Ascension of Larks, Becoming the Talbot Sisters, and The Enlightenment of Bees. Currently, Rachel lives with her family in Seattle, Washington, where she enjoys creating stories about her favorite things, strong women facing big challenges, food, travel, and second chances at love. So Rachel, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mandy. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. 
It's it is probably one of my uh, like fangirl moments where I had a moment of courage and I asked you on Instagram if you'd want to be on the show and so I'm kind of pinching myself like it worked an author friend oh. that I I read her book and she wants to be on the show so well how could I not so I write books about you know strong women facing big challenges and so how could I not be on a podcast called She Who Overcomes. Well, thank you very much. You know, our our entire focus on the show is to really have great conversations that can help women um, and, you know, the men that want to be overcomers as well, but specifically women um, transform their lives and their leadership and their careers. And so one of the questions that I ask all of our guests on the show is, if you were a shoe, what would you be and what story does that tell about you? Mm, that's such a fun question. So I would be a Rothy's ballet flat and Rothy's are made from recycled water bottles. And um, we're very environmentally conscious here in Seattle. So that fits in perfectly. I really love the earth and care about the earth. But Rothy's are also super durable. They're stylish, but they're up for an adventure. And I feel like that kind of defines I try to live life with style, but I am also durable, have a lot of grit and resilience, and I'm up for an adventure. So I would be a, I have two pairs and I would definitely be a Rothy's ballet flat. I love that. It's, it's so much fun to hear how women uh, can see themselves in their shoe choice. And so I, I encourage you to take this little, little fun experiment and start asking it with any group of women that you're in. It's, it's a fascinating case study of personalities and creativity. I'm totally going to do that. What, okay. So Mandy, what shoe are you? Okay. I am 100% a black stiletto because Ooh. they're classy, but they also mean business, but they also, I, well, mostly just, I am on my A game when I'm in them. I don't know how much longer I can wear them though, because they're starting to hurt my feet if I wear them for more than like four hours at a time. So We're I'm getting to that point where it's like, <laughs> I need to bring my walking shoes and then I have stage shoes. So yeah, you're going to have to go to like the pointy flats that are cool and A game, but better for mm -hmm. older late feet. I know I'm in the same boat. No more yeah. high heels for me. <laughs> I am. I am holding on strong as often as I can. I figure if Celine Dion can dance on a stage in at 50 years old in stilettos, then I can at least maybe try to wear them four hours at a time. So that's, right. that's where I'm at for hopefully the next decade of my life. We'll see. <laughs> but I am curious to know how long have you had the dream of being an author and what um, what was kind of your road to get there? I know one of the questions that that you had kind of sent in um, on the questionnaire was what is one time where you you had a big hope and you took massive action and you said it was going after this dream of being an author and and I think our readers or our readers, our listeners would love to know how long have you wanted to be one and what has it like going on? What, what is it like going on that journey of becoming an author and, and not just one book, but three and, and I don't know if you're working on another one, but like continuous books. What has that been like for you? Well, I, that's a great question. I wrote my first book when I was six and it was called Beans with an exclamation point, like the vegetable. And so, you know, the, the subject matter wasn't extremely exciting, uh, but I bound it in cardboard from cereal boxes. My mom still has it because, you know, moms totally believe in us more than we believe in ourselves. And like, this is going to be worth big money someday. And I'm going to save this because this is your first book, which I'm, I'm not at all sure that anyone wants a book on beans that's found in Cheerios <laughs> boxes, but she's got it. 
And so I have been a storyteller since I had words and have always wanted to write books and was always writing a book. So it wasn't that I always wanted to write a book. I was always writing a book and always had a dream of publishing. And so I started my publication journey before I had my first son. And I thought, you know, I just have this feeling I've got a really good story and I have a feeling that I should just go for it. And it is frankly a terrible time to try to start a publishing career right before you have a child. Like it's not not an advisable uh, time period to do both of those things at mm-hmm. once, but, but it worked out really well. And so I attended a writing conference and I met a couple different uh, agents and editors and I had, I'd done it years previously and I had this card in my pocket from an agent and I'd kept it. I'd kept a card, I put it in a little folder when I got home from the conference and I kept it for years, even in an international move. And so I was living in Budapest at the time. I was uh, an international aid worker and I pulled that little card out and I thought, well, I'm just, I'm just going to query. I'm going to query and see what happens because I figured there'd be a lot of rejection, but I thought there also might be a yes. And there was some rejection. And then there was a yes from that same agent that I had met. And that started uh, the, all the open doors for actually doing this as a career. Was it, was it scary when you got the yes? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. It's a different, you know, when you get rejection, it's very disappointing, but I think as an author, you have to be very, very ready for rejection because there's a lot of it that comes, but the yes can be scary because it's stepping into something new and there's the potential for failure and, Mm -hmm. and you don't, you're not equipped because you're doing something completely new. Um, So that has its own kind of fear, but obviously the excitement and the potential and just the intrinsic Mm -hmm. joy that I get from doing the thing that I love really outweighed that. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your book, The Enlightenment of Bees. Now, is this your, is like what lineup or what order did this book come out in? This is my, so this is my third published novel. It's actually my fifth novel. Usually authors will write one or two that they think are great. And then they realize, oh, those were just the practice for figuring out how to do this. So I have two that didn't really go anywhere. And actually The Enlightenment of Bees is, I took a lot of material from my second novel that never was published and made it into the enlightenment of bees. So it's sort of like a, it's a hybrid. It, some of the okay. got used, which is great because it feels like yeah. it wasn't, wasn't a wasted, you know, it was a learning experience and I got some good material out of it. So it's number three that was published. Okay. And where did you come up with the idea for this story? Uh, a lot of it is autobiographical. Tons of the story is autobiographical. So I had my whole life planned out and uh, was picking out a wedding dress, actually. And my fiance and I were um, were talking about a date and he broke things off out oh, of the no, blue. Like you're Mia. <laughs> totally. I'm so Mia. And oh. it's devastating because it not only, I mean, your heart is broken, but also mm-hmm. you had an entire future planned out with someone. And now that whole future is not happening. And so in a similar way, I didn't go on this big roundabout or, you know, around the world trip to find my sweet spot in life. And it would took me a lot longer with a lot more detours than Mia, mm-hmm. but I did, I went on a journey to try to figure out what a second life, a second idea, a second dra- a draft of a life could look like. Mm-hmm. And definitely was looking for my own sweet spot in life. And I also got chased by a shark. Oh, that part was true. That, that okay. part is true too. I know nobody wow. believed that. And I met one reader who was like, you know, the part I identified with the most in the story. And usually people say like the heartbreak or Mia's relationship with her grandmother. And she goes, the shark chase. I got chased by a shark oh, too. Man. And I thought, 
okay, I think you're like the, the only other person maybe in the United States that we can share yeah. this experience together. So <laughs> it's well, funny what readers identify with. It really is. It, it was such a gripping tale. And, and reading your background of um, all of the work that, that you've done overseas, I, I mean, as you're going through this book and you're experiencing the different countries and the different um, types of work that, that this team of people is going through, I wondered, I'm like, I wonder how much of this is like firsthand experience because um, it just seemed like, like it could be. And I think it was such an exciting journey because as somebody who's always wanted to travel the world, but has not yet, I've gotten to the Bahamas. That's about it. But you give such a beautiful description of what it was like in each, in each country, um, outside of like the tourist part of it. And, and you really draw the readers into what it was like to be the, the refugees, you know, going through this process and what it's like to be the team members who want to make a difference in the world, but they start questioning, are they really? And um, I just, I loved every minute of it. I have been telling everybody that I meet who's asking for a book to read this book. So oh, um, the other thing that I really thought was, was just a breath of fresh air when it came to this story is reading how Mia kind of goes on this journey of downplaying the passions that she has in life because somebody that she really admired and looked up to made a comment one time that she needed to aspire to something bigger. And I thought that was such a great example of how we can often deny ourselves our passions because we're comparing it to what other people think. Um, is that something that you have seen and heard other readers really identify with too, or something that you've seen a lot of in your journey? Yes. Yes to both of those. And I'm glad you picked up on that because that really is the main theme. The main theme of the book is, so, you know, Mia's a baker. She has her entire life planned out. And then when it all falls apart in a day, she goes around this around the world humanitarian trip to find her sweet spot in life. And her sweet spot is baking. Her sweet spot is something that she thinks is frivolous compared to this big humanitarian crisis that she ends up in. And uh, yeah, I really identified with that because I spent years feeling like I should be doing this NGO work, which I lo loved and found deeply satisfying. But I also really, really, really wanted to be writing uplifting women's fiction novels. And in a way, it felt a little bit flippant to do that when you could also be feeding refugees, you know? And so that was a struggle that I had to go through in my own heart and soul to say, no, this is this is what I'm made for. This is what I love to do. And there's intrinsic value in that. And I am not going to be a doctor on the front lines of a medical emergency internationally, but I am going to be doing something that I feel like positively contributes to the world in the way that I uniquely can do it. And so I had to come to, um, come to peace with that and really embrace that truth and put that through mm -hmm. in Mia's story. And that's what readers have most picked up on. So I still get, every week I get emails from readers, almost all women, a lot of them in their twenties and thirties who are saying, you know, I had either my life collapsed and I'm looking for new meaning, or I love this thing, but it's never felt like enough. And this book just reminds me, I had a reader who was uh, disabled in a wheelchair. And she said, you know, I've been feeling for years, like there was nothing that I could do. And your book just reminds me that all of us have a sweet spot and all of us have something to give the world. And that's the, that was the whole main point of the book is that we all have a sweet spot. We all have something positive that we can contribute to the world.
Mm-hmm. That that was what really um, resonated with me the most, and I think it's the part that started to spark my my uh, fire again for the things that that I've done in my company. So I own my company with my best friend, um, and we are both certified life coaches and we do a lot of leadership coaching for women. So it's a little bit of life coaching and leadership coaching and some business mentoring too with our one-on-one clients who are also entrepreneurs. And I think we went through this phase where we wanted to try on a lot of different methods of coaching because we were listening to all of the gurus who are like, you you know, you need to do the courses and you need to have the opt-ins and you need to have all these things. And I think for a little bit, we we spent some time chasing shiny objects because we were listening to other coaches, but it just wasn't working and it wasn't something we enjoyed. So we have recently made the decision to go back to what was working in the beginning. And that was publishing our own curriculum and books and journals to go along with our coaching programs. And it's, it's like we're excited again to help people. And I think anybody can be tempted to go down this little journey of questioning your passions and questioning of, is it still something that I can do? Is it going to be viable? Is it going to really truly help people? Or do I need to throw that all away and listen to other people and, and, you know, do what they think I should do. And ultimately, I do believe that all of us have something special that we were put on this planet to do. And it's our job to lean into that and to figure out how to unleash it into the world. And so that is why I highly, 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 highly recommend The Enlightenment of Bees because it it did. It was almost like this book came into my life, Rachel, at just the most, at at the right time to... um, give me some confirmation that going back to what sparked passion in me and in our company was the right thing to do. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for telling me that, Mandy. And I'm so glad. And I think that I'm so glad that you, you and your partner have figured out that. Cause I think the, when you're saying chasing shiny objects and shoulds, I always look out for the shoulds because I think that shoulds often lead us down a path that is against what we actually have in our hearts, what our desires are. So there are a few shoulds, like if you're a mom, you should bathe and feed your children, that kind of thing. Like, you know, there's some shoulds in life that we just have to do. But I think when it comes to life purpose, should is a really bad motivator because it's not intrinsic. Mm -hmm. A should is very often not, not coming from a place of passion, desire, and excitement. And instead, mm-hmm. we when we need to allow ourselves to ask, what is it that we really want? You know, what is that sweet spot where we feel like we can give something good, and it's intrinsically the thing that we love to do. And it's different mm-hmm. for everybody. And it, I, it, I love to ask people what they do, and then if they love what they do, and if if it's not their job, what is the thing that really gives them joy? And I met a friend's. Um, a friend's partner, I asked him what he did. And he goes, Oh, I, I'm a foundation. What was he like a foundation art? He basically did dirt. Like he, his job was an engineer for foundations in dirt. And to my way of thinking, I thought, Oh man, poor guy, that's a really boring job. But I asked him, I said, Oh, do you enjoy that? And his eyes lit up, his whole face lit up. And he was like, Oh my gosh, I love it. I could talk about dirt all day. It's the best. And I just thought, 
oh my goodness, this is what a gift that this man has done something that most other people mm-hmm. would find not thrilling, but to him, it's totally, it, and it, he loves it. And it's important because we need houses mm-hmm. to not fall down. Like it, it's an it's a important thing for the world that you have safe buildings and he loves dirt. And so mm-hmm. I love it when I meet someone and their eyes just light up and they can say, oh yeah, I love what I do. And so for me writing a book, it feels like I get to eat cake all day. Everything related to author, mm-hmm. author my author life, it feels like the the biggest treat. And so I love it. I feel incredibly fortunate. And I know first it's a lot I've you know um, met a lot of people who say, oh, I hate writing. The thought of writing a book feels like torture. <laughs> and that's definitely not their sweet spot. But then their sweet spot is going to be something else that probably is not of interest to me, but something good that they can give the world. Mm-hmm. So I have to I have to piggyback a little bit on something you said a while ago. You said you went to a writers conference. Um, is this conference like? Do you mind sharing which one it was, and and do they still have it available in in some form in the, in this day and age, even with the pandemic? Oh gosh, it was in Chicago. I can't even remember what it was called. I don't think they're doing it anymore. There are a ton of writers conferences. Obviously, because of COVID, most of them have become virtual, mm-hmm. which is tough because so so much of the joy of writers' yeah. conferences is getting to be with other writers and industry professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say that anybody who's interested in writing, uh, what we learned living in Central Europe for so many years is that everything happens in relationship. And I feel like that's true of the writing community. That's just true of life, that we're relational creatures mm-hmm. and things happen in relationship with other people. And so I think um, I just encourage anyone who's interested in writing to to join local organizations. To there, there are always writers organizations, join national organizations, join online forums to really get connected relationally because through those relationships, that's when the good things move forward in your own career. Mm-hmm. That, that is so true. Like everything does happen in relationship. And I think that's one of the things that we really noticed over the last year because of the pandemic, no matter where you live, when you take away the ability to meet face to face, you start to notice how important those relationships really are. Yes. Yes, exactly. And that was, um, so I think there's, it's been interesting to see how people have navigated it because we're relational creatures. And this has been a really hard year for a lot of us. But I also think that we also see how much resilience humanity has. And mm-hmm. I, I've been amazed walking around, you know, Seattle, we had the first COVID case in the U.S. So we have been, we've dealt with now an entire year of it in our city. And um, it's just amazing to me to see how people have kind of adjusted. And so they're all meeting outside, taking walks, socially distanced, masked with their friends, but we're still having these connections. It's just different. Or they're having dinner in this funny little blue um, but people are still meeting relationships are still going forward. It just now we've adapted to what it needs to be for right now, which I think mm-hmm. really a testament to, yeah, humanity's resilience. It really is. And I think there are, are so many people that are wrestling with hope this year and, and maybe they've been wrestling with hope all along, like having hope, losing hope. Um, is it okay to lose hope? And I think one of the one of the things that I found fascinating in this book is how Mia finds her thing. She she not not only finds it, but gives herself permission to admit what it is to herself. And then, you know, she she takes that and she does something pretty significant with it. 
And because of, you know, the length of a book, it, it can sometimes seem like all of this happens so quickly and, and with a lot of ease. And we know in real life, that's not the case, right? And you can't always fit that into a book, depending on the, the storyline and um, all of that. And, and I can't help but wonder, what are some of the ways that you have lost hope on your journey of being an author? And how did you dig out of that to spark hope again with this dream? I'd imagine with all the rejection that comes with being an author, there have been many times where this has happened. That is such a good question. Yeah, the biggest one that springs to mind was actually with my second book, Becoming the Talbot Sisters, which is still a book that I deeply love. It's set in Central Europe. And it, I had super high hopes for it and probably overinflated hopes for it. And it just didn't do particularly well. It was, it was a like in terms of sales numbers, it was a failure. My agent said it, my editor said it, you know, the publishing house said it, I said it. And it was horrible to to believe that something was going to work really, really well and mm-hmm. have all this hope and expectation. And then it just fell flat. And it was, it was an awful, probably six, eight, 10 months of, um, of going through failure and kind of failure publicly. And that's very humiliating. It's humiliating from every aspect. Um, but honestly, I think it's the best thing that could have happened to me because I am, I was, I'm pretty perfectionistic, kind of type A, used to success. And it was so good for me to fail Mm -hmm. because what it allowed me, it it strengthened my resilience. It strengthened, really gave me a lot more grit and the ability to say, okay, that was awful. That was painful. And I lived through it. I failed. I'm here on the other side. It didn't kill me. And uh, it gave me kind of humbled my pride and gave me a much better, um, just a, I'm just a lot stronger and tougher and able to handle the disappointments that come along because I've already failed kind of not spectacularly, but, you know, kind of publicly and humiliatingly and, um, and survived and been okay and actually come out the other end and done and done well and seen success on the other side of it. So that, um, I think that the failure was actually the best thing for building resilience. And I've been able to handle both the success and the failure better because of that. That is a good piece of advice right there. I think that's inspiring to me as um, an, an author who has published a lot of books on her own and, and through her own company. And now I am I have a book out there that is um, seeking a publisher and whether or not it will find a traditional publisher or I'll end up publishing it again myself. I haven't quite decided yet, but I think there's pros and cons to both depending on what your goals are. Um, and, and it is true when you fail at something, you now have a lesson and you know something that you didn't know beforehand, and you survive it. I think when you think about becoming a she who overcomes, so many women that we've worked with, they they get afraid to fail, especially if it's in a public way, not realizing that that really is part of the journey. And that is something to celebrate as well, because there's something important within that. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think what I realized was that my identity and value are not linked to my success, mm-hmm. my outward success. And I wouldn't have said that before. I would have said mm-hmm. that my value 
was really tied up in how I did. And, um, and I had to sort of separate my value, my intrinsic value when there was failure to say, I am not a failure and something that I did failed and okay, how, and and I'm okay. I'm breathing. I'm living. Everything is okay. Um, and I really felt like in that I was to focus on relationships and not sales numbers. Mm. And so I leaned into relationships and leaned into connections, which is frankly a humiliating time to try to lean into industry relationships when you're not a success, but mm. it has yielded such good results and good relationships and um, ended up leading to a lot of further open doors because I chose to put relationships before being humiliated or hiding or, you know, being having my pride wounded so, yeah, I think how we handle failure, if we can, if we can turn it for good, there's actually a really interesting book called What Doesn't Kill Us. And it's about how we can harness trauma. And it's really good for the world right now. Yeah. How some people harness trauma for positive results. It's mm-hmm. a pretty dense psychological book, but it's really good. And it talks about how some people come through traumatic events and it actually um, encourages them to go even further in who they're meant to be and what they're meant to give to the world. And it becomes a positive catalyst for growth in their lives. And um, so I would say that the failures and the the hard things and the disappointments have been some of the best positive catalysts for growth while being intensely painful in the moment. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a book I need to read. So yeah, I'm going to read it. it. <laughs> Do you remember who it's by? Ah, excellent question. You know what? I'll look it up and I'll, I'll let you know. Okay. Trying to remember. I can't, it's on my nightstand, but it's been on my nightstand for a while. So I can't remember. (laughs) Are you one of those authors where you read several books at a time too, or do you kind of plow through one at a time and get it done? Oh no. I, I am reading like eight at a time. Usually that I used to be the type of person who would read like, um, two books a month. And I would figure out how many pages of each I'd have to read per day to reach the goal. And just over the last couple of years, I'm like, I can't do that anymore. So I am reading, I think, five books now all together at the same time and just letting myself go from one to the other, depending on my mood. And it's mm-hmm. one of the easier reading times I've ever experienced instead of that type A personality of goal, go for the goal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I was more a one book at a time. And then I had children and then I have small children. Mm -hmm. And my reading time is sometimes 15 minutes before bed when I'm sleepy. And so sometimes I just am not ready for the heavy hitting Mm -hmm. Pulitzer Prize winner. Frankly, this entire pandemic year, I have not been ready for heavy hitting Pulitzer Prize winners. So my Kindle has been very full of British rom-coms this year because- Chiclet. Um, mm-hmm. So what doesn't kill us that we were talking about the new psychology of post-traumatic growth is by Stephen Joseph, PhD. Okay. Stephen Joseph, what doesn't kill us, the new psychology of post-traumatic growth. Perfect. And it is a dense read. I felt like I was back in grad school, but it's okay. very okay. good information. Awesome. I think that would be very beneficial for my listeners too, because um, usually my business partner is a co-host with me on the show, but right now, because of the season of life that she's in, I have more time to schedule these these guest shows and these guest spots. However, one of the things that we talk about a lot in not only the podcast, but also our coaching business is we talk about how do you how do you heal from trauma how do you know when it's time to work with a therapist versus a coach like how do you how do you make sure that you aren't just burying it 
um, so that it comes back up at a time where now you've got more to work through because you didn't handle it the first time around. So I think that would definitely be a helpful book to all of my listeners as well. Mm, So thanks for sharing it. Oh, yes, of course. Also, your podcast sounds fantastic. I'm sitting there thinking, yes, I think like every woman on the planet needs to be hearing (laughs) what friends are sharing this year. That's great. Well, thank you. Well, let's um, end with two questions. The first one is, how do you tap into your creativity? Oh, how fun. What a fun question. I, you know, well, I've been telling stories really since I had words. I just, and now I watch my six-year-old do it. And it's so fun to watch the, just the worlds that children create. And I'm like, yep, this is what I was doing too. Um, I tap into it. I, something will spark imagination. And usually it's a true life story. Reading BBC, I read BBC news every day. I lived in England for a few years. And so I go, go to the BBC news site and I'm surprised by how often an article I'll run across just sparks something. And I think, oh, there's a story there and I'll save the article. And then I just start rolling it around in my mind and thinking, okay, what could this be? What, what sparks imagination? Who do I want to, when you, when you um, agree to write a story, you're stuck with that story and those characters for a couple of years and Mm -hmm. at least a year. And so sometimes I'll, I'll just decide somebody's not interesting enough. I don't want to be with them. A story isn't interesting. I don't want to be with it for a year. And so a lot of times it's just thinking, is there something that's capturing my imagination? And I've heard, I had an agent say once that every author really only has one story that we tell. We just tell it in a lot of different ways. And I think that that's true. Maybe they have one to three stories, but authors, mm-hmm. there will be these life theme stories. And I think we all have life themes, things that we wrestle with, things mm-hmm. that we're passionate about. And those stories, those themes come up again and again. And so for me, it's themes of identity, themes of home, themes of connection and courage, um, a sense of place and a sense of hope that there is something more, that life can mean more, that life mm-hmm. can be more in essence. And so I tap into that creativity just by by having something spark my interest in my imagination and thinking, oh, that feels like something I want to explore for a year. And mm-hmm. these people feel mm-hmm. like people I want to be with for a year in my mind as we create this story together. That's encouraging because I have heard people say if they're not writers, they don't often understand why creative people are finding new ways to tell the same story or to to share a new point along that theme. And if you're not creative like that and you don't see the the stories and the lessons, you can start to wonder like, gosh, why aren't they over it yet? <laughs> However, I know a lot of writers who are that way where it's like myself included, you have these themes and it it's just new ways to tell that story or to tell an aspect of the story that you haven't shared yet because you weren't ready. And story is so potent. It's so powerful because we're primed for it. We're primed. So we are primed mm-hmm. for connection and we're primed for story because story empathetically allows us to experience things without actually having to have them experienced in our own lives. And we feel like we mm-hmm. develop all kinds of tools of, of resilience and of all kinds of coping things so that if something like this happens to us, we know how to react. And so it's very interesting. We, mm-hmm. we, we want it on a primal level as humans because we're looking for survival strategies. We're looking for ways to thrive, to yes. survive and to thrive. And story allows us to 
to almost imagine these scenarios and equip ourselves so that if something happens, we have what we need to thrive in those situations. And so it's true. There's no new story. They're just new ways of telling stories, but we still need them because we're still learning and we still, every person will react differently to a story. They'll draw out something different and it'll mean something different to them. And they're equipping themselves in a different way. And so we need, we need those stories still because we're equipping ourselves to try to thrive in our own existences. Mm -hmm. I love it. All right, Rachel, where can my listeners connect with you? Okay, so they can come connect with me on my website, which is brand spanking new. We just did a beautiful refresh. And so it's at www.rachellinden.com. They can sign up for my newsletter and also get a recipe booklet of recipes from around the world that I've collected in my travels, which is fine. It's just free and it comes to you as soon as you sign up. And then you can also find me on Instagram and on Facebook. And I love to connect with listeners and readers. So come say hi, tell me what you think of Enlightenment of Bees if you read it. And I would love to connect with you. Yes. And I highly recommend that everybody listening does just that because um, also your website looks amazing. I've, I've been watching you post on Instagram about how the, how the updates are going and it just it just looks great. So congratulations Thank on that. You. And that's always a fun thing to be finished with. Yes. Right? Yes. And go, oh, oh, that turned out well. Yep. Awesome. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy life to to chat with me and share your uh, experience and these lessons with my listeners. I do hope that everybody listening goes and gets The Enlightenment of Bees. I am putting your other two books on my list as well and getting them as soon as possible. So thank you so much for that. And all right, overcomers, I'm going to go ahead and say goodbye today. And until next time, may you rise up, lead well, and live with intention. Hey guys, thanks again for listening. Before you go, would you mind doing us a favor? We would love to hear your takeaways. So please leave us a review and a comment. You might just hear your name in a future episode when you do. This show is produced by Rayma Team Media, a division of Rayma Team LLC. If you'd like to learn more about how you can work with us, visit raymateam.com. That's www.raymateam.com. All right. Our coffee is cold, so we got to go. See you next week.